Section 6 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Molehill Mountain. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 3, Part 3 Color. With these divergences in brightness are connected certain divergences in color which, physiologically, are caused by the fact that the scale of sensitiveness is different for different colors. The strength of the sensation produced by light of a particular color, and for a given intensity of light, depends altogether on the special reaction of that complex of nerves which are set in operation by the action of the light in question. Now, all our sensations of color are admixtures of three simple sensations, namely of red, green, and violet. By a not improbable supposition of Thomas Young, can be apprehended quite independently of each other by three different systems of nerve fibers. To this independence of the different sensations of color corresponds their independence in the gradation of intensity. Recent measurements have shown that the sensitiveness of our eye for feeble shadows is greatest in the blue and least in the red. A difference of 1 over 205 to 1 over 268 of the intensity can be observed in the blue, and with an untired eye of 1 16th in the red. Or when the color is dimmed by being looked at for a long time, a difference of 1 50th to 1 70th. Red, therefore, acts as a color towards whose shades the eye is relatively less sensitive than towards that of blue. In agreement with this, the impression of glare, as the intensity increases, is feebler in red than in blue. According to an observation of Dove, if a blue and a red paper be chosen which appear of equal brightness under a mean degree of white light, as the light is made much dimmer, the blue appears brighter and as the light is much strengthened, the red. I myself have found that the same differences are seen, and even in a more striking manner, in the red and violet spectral colors, and, when their intensity is increased only moderately, by the same fraction for both. Now the impression of white is made up of the impressions which the individual spectral colors make on our eye. If we increase the brightness of white, the strength of the sensation for the red and yellow rays will relatively be more increased than that for the blue and violet. In bright white, therefore, the former will produce a relatively stronger impression than the latter. In dull white, the blue and bluish colors will have this effect. Very bright white appears therefore yellowish, and dull white appears bluish. In our ordinary way of looking at the objects about us, we are not so readily conscious of this, for the direct comparison of colors of very different shade is difficult, and we are accustomed to see in this alteration in the white the result of different illumination of one and the same white object, so that in judging pigment colors we have learnt to eliminate the influence of brightness. If, however, to the painter is put the problem of imitating, with faint colors, white irradiated by the sun, he can attain a high degree of resemblance for by an admixture of yellow in his white he makes this color preponderate just as it would preponderate in actual bright light, owing to the impression on the nerves. It is the same impression as that produced if we look at a clouded landscape through a yellow glass, and thereby give it the appearance of a sunny light. 
The artist will, on the contrary, give a bluish tint to moonlight, that is, a faint white, for the colors on the picture must, as we have seen, be far brighter than the color to be represented. In moonshine scarcely any other color can be recognized than blue. The blue starry sky or blue colors may still appear distinctly colored, while yellow and red can only be seen as obscurations of the general bluish white or gray. I will again remind you that these changes of color would not be necessary if the artist had at his disposal colors of the same brightness or the same faintness as are actually shown by the bodies irradiated by the sun or by the moon. The change of color, like the scale of shade, previously discussed, is a subjective action which the artist must represent objectively on his canvas, since moderately bright colors cannot produce them. We observe something quite similar in regard to the phenomena of contrast. By this term we understand cases in which the color or brightness of a surface appears changed by the proximity of a mass of another color or shade, and, in such a manner, that the original color appears darker by the proximity of a brighter shade, and brighter by that of a darker shade, while by a color of a different kind it tends toward the complementary tint. The phenomena of contrast are very various, and depend on different causes. One class, Chevreul's simultaneous contrast, is independent of the motions of the eyes, and occurs with surfaces where there are very slight differences in color and shade. This contrast appears both on the picture and in actual objects, and is well known to painters. Their mixtures of color on the palette often appear quite different to what they are on the picture. The changes of color which are here met with are often very striking. I will not, however, enter upon them, for they produce no divergence between the picture and reality. The second class of phenomena of contrast, and one which, for us, is more important, is met with in changes of direction of the glance, and more especially between surfaces in which there are great differences of shade and of color. As the eye glides over bright and dark, or colored objects and surfaces, the impression of each color changes, for it is depicted on portions of the retina which directly before were struck by other colors and lights, and were therefore changed in their sensitiveness to an impression. This kind of contrast is therefore essentially dependent on movements of the eye, and has been called by Chevreul successive contrast. We have already seen that the retina is more sensitive in the dark to feeble light than it was before. By strong light, on the contrary, it is dulled, and is less sensitive to feeble lights which it had before perceived. This latter process is designated as fatigue of the retina, an exhaustion of the capability of the retina by its own activity, just as the muscles by their activity become tired. I must here remark that the fatigue of the retina by light does not necessarily extend to the whole surface. But when only a small portion of this membrane is struck by a minute, defined picture, it can be locally developed in this part only. You must all have observed the dark spots which move about in the field of vision when we have been looking for only a short time towards the setting sun, and which physiologists call negative afterimages of the sun. They are due to the fact that only those parts of the retina which are actually struck by the image of the sun in the eye have become insensitive to a new impression of light. If, with an eye which is thus locally tired, we look toward a uniformly bright surface, such as the sky, the tired parts of the retina are more feebly and more darkly affected than the other portions. 
so that the observer thinks he sees dark spots in the sky, which move about with his sight. We have then, in juxtaposition, in the bright parts of the sky, the impression which these make upon the untired parts of the retina, and in the dark spots their action on the tired portions. Objects, bright like the sun, produce negative afterimages in the most striking manner. But, with a little attention, they may be seen even after much more moderate impressions of light. A longer time is required in order to develop such an impression, so that it may be distinctly recognized, and a definite point of the bright object must be fixed, without moving the eye, so that its image may be distinctly formed on the retina, and only a limited portion of the retina can be excited and tired. Just as in producing sharp photographic portraits, the object must be stationary during the time of exposure in order that its image may not be displaced on the sensitive plate. The afterimage in the eye is, as it were, a photograph on the retina, which becomes visible owing to the altered sensitiveness toward fresh light, but only remains stationary for a short time. It is longer, the more powerful and durable was the action of light. If the object viewed was colored, for instance red paper, the afterimage is of the complementary color on a gray ground, in this case of a bluish green. Footnote. In order to see this kind of image as distinctly as possible, it is desirable to avoid all movements of the eye. On a large sheet of dark gray paper, a small black cross is drawn, the center of which is steadily viewed, and a quadrangular sheet of paper of that color, whose afterimage is to be observed, is slid from the side, so that one of its corners touches the cross. The sheet is allowed to remain for a minute or two, the cross being steadily viewed, and is then drawn suddenly away, without relaxing the view. In place of the sheet removed, the afterimage appears then on the dark ground. End footnote. Rose-red paper, on the contrary, gives a pure green afterimage, green a rose-red, blue a yellow, and yellow a blue. These phenomena show that in the retina, partial fatigue is possible for the several colors. According to Thomas Young's hypothesis of existence of three systems of fibers in the visual nerves, of which one set perceives red, whatever the kind of irritation, the second green, and the third violet, with green light, only those fibers of the retina which are sensitive to green are powerfully excited and tired. If this same part of the retina is afterwards illuminated with the white light, the sensation of green is enfeebled, while that of red and violet is vivid and predominant. Their sum gives the sensation of purple, which mixed with the unchanged white ground forms rose-red. In the ordinary way of looking at light in colored objects, we are not accustomed to fix continuously one and the same point, for following with the gaze the play of our attentiveness, we are always turning it to new parts of the object as they happen to interest us. This way of looking, in which the eye is continually moving and therefore the retinal image is also shifting about on the retina, has moreover the advantage of avoiding disturbances of sight, which powerful and continuous afterimages would bring with them. Yet here also afterimages are not wanting, only they are shadowy in their contours and of very short duration. If a red surface be laid upon a gray ground, and if we look from the red over the edge towards the gray, the edges of the gray will seem as if struck by such an afterimage of red and will seem to be of a faint bluish green. But as the afterimage rapidly disappears, it is mostly only those parts of the gray, which are nearest the red, which show the change in a marked degree.
This is also a phenomenon which is produced more strongly by bright light and brilliant saturated colors than by fainter light and duller colors. The artist, however, works for the most part with the latter. He produces most of his tints by mixture. Each mixed pigment is, however, grayer and duller than the pure color of which it is mixed, and even the few pigments of a highly saturated shade which oil painting can employ are comparatively dark. The pigments employed in watercolors and colored chalks are again comparatively white. Hence, such bright contrasts as are observed in strongly colored and strongly lighted objects in nature cannot be expected from their representation in the picture. If, therefore, with the pigments at his command, the artist wishes to reproduce the impression which objects give as strikingly as possible, he must paint the contrasts which they produce. If the colors on the picture are as brilliant and luminous as in the actual objects, the contrasts in the former case would produce themselves as spontaneously as in the latter. Here, also, subjective phenomena of the eye must be objectively introduced into the picture because the scale of color and of brightness is different upon the latter. With a little attention, you will see that painters and draftsmen generally make a plain, uniformly lighted surface brighter, where it is close to a dark object, and darker where it is near a light object. You will find that uniform gray surfaces are given a yellowish tint at the edge where there is a background of blue, and a rose-red tint where they impinge on green provided that none of the light collected from the blue or green can fall upon the gray. Were the sun's rays passing through the green leafy shade of trees strike against the ground, they appear to the eye, tired with looking at the predominant green, of a rose-red tint. The whole daylight entering through a slit appears blue, compared with reddish-yellow candlelight. In this way they are represented by the painter, since the colors of his pictures are not bright enough to produce the contrast without such help. To the series of subjective phenomena which artists are compelled to represent objectively in their pictures must be associated certain phenomena of irradiation. By this is understood cases in which any bright object in the field spreads its light or color over the neighborhood. The phenomena are the more marked, the brighter is the irradiating object, and the halo is brightest in the immediate neighborhood of the bright object, but diminishes at a greater distance. These phenomena of irradiation are most striking around a very bright light on a dark ground. If the view of the flame itself is closed by a narrow dark object, such as the finger, a bright misty halo disappears, which covers the whole neighborhood, and, at the same time, any objects there may be in the dark part of the field of view are seen more distinctly. If the flame is partially screened by a ruler, this appears jagged where the flame projects around it. The luminosity of the neighborhood of flame is so intense that its brightness can scarcely be distinguished from that of the flame itself. As is the case with all bright objects, the flame appears magnified and as if spreading over towards the adjacent dark objects. The cause of this phenomenon is quite similar to that of aerial perspective. It is due to a diffusion of light, which arises from the passage of light through dull media, expecting that for the phenomena of aerial perspective, the turbidity is to be sought in the air in front of the eye, while for true phenomena of irradiation, it is to be sought in the transparent media of the eye. When even the healthiest human eye is examined by powerful light, the best being a pencil of sunlight concentrated on the side by a condensing lens, it is seen that the sclerotica and crystalline lens are not perfectly clear. 
If strongly illuminated, they both appear whitish and as if rendered turbid by a fine mist. Both are, in fact, tissues of fibrous structure and are not therefore so homogeneous as a pure liquid or a pure crystal. Every inequality, however small in the structure of a transparent body, can, however, reflect some of the incident light, that is, can diffuse it in all directions. Footnote. I disregard here the view that irradiation of the eye depends on a diffusion of the excitation in the substance of the nerves, as this appears to me too hypothetical. Moreover, we are here concerned with the phenomena and not with their cause. End footnote. The phenomena of irradiation also occur with moderate degrees of brightness. A dark aperture in a sheet of paper illuminated by the sun, or a small dark object on a colored glass plate which is held against the clear sky, appear as if the color of the adjacent surface were diffused over them. Hence the phenomena of irradiation are very similar to those which produce the opacity of the air. The only essential difference lies in this that the opacity of luminous air is stronger before distant objects which have a greater mass of air in front of them than before near ones, while the irradiation of the eye sheds its halo uniformly over near and over distant objects. Irradiation also belongs to the subjective phenomena of the eye which the artist represents objectively, because painted lights and painted sunlight are not bright enough to produce a distinct irradiation in the eye of the observer. The representation which the painter has to give of the lights and colors of his object I have described as a translation, and I have urged that, as a general rule, it cannot give a copy true in all its details. The altered scale of brightness, which the artist must apply in many cases, is opposed to this. It is not the colors of the objects, but the impression which they have given, or would give, which is to be imitated, so as to produce as distinct and vivid a conception as possible of those objects. As the painter must change the scale of light and color in which he executes his picture, he only alters something which is subject to manifold change according to the lighting and to the degree of fatigue of the eye. He retains the more essential, that is, the gradations of brightness and tint here present themselves a series of phenomena which are occasioned by the manner in which the eye replies to an external irritation, and since they depend upon the intensity of this irritation, they are not directly produced by the varied luminous intensity and colors of the picture. These objective phenomena, which occur on looking at the object, would be wanting if the painter did not represent them objectively on his canvas. The fact that they are represented is particularly significant for the kind of problem which is to be solved by a pictorial representation. Now, in all translations, the individuality of the translator plays a part. In artistic productions, many important points are left to the choice of the artist, which he can decide according to his individual taste or according to the requirements of his subject. Within certain limits, he can freely select the absolute brightness of his colors, as well as the strength of the shadows. Like Rembrandt, he may exaggerate them in order to obtain strong relief, or he may diminish them, with Fra Angelico and his modern imitators, in order to soften earthly shadows in the representation of sacred objects. Like the Dutch school, he may represent the varying light of the atmosphere, now bright and sunny, and now pale or warm and cold and thereby evoke in the observer moods which depend on the illumination and on the state of the weather. 
or by means of undisturbed air he may cause his figures to stand out objectively clear as it were and uninfluenced by subjective impressions by this means greater variety is attained in what the artists call style or treatment and indeed in their purely pictorial elements end of section six